following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. And we are in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. So thanks, Scott, for filling in last week. What we're reading today is going to follow up on what was discussed last week, the whole milk and meat uh, scenario that you discussed then. And one of the things to note is that section in Hebrews is a little bit of a rebuke to the church uh, that was to whom this letter was written. Like, y'all need to grow up spiritually. But that rebuke is followed by an encouragement. This is actually kind of the pattern of the book, that the author says some hard things and then says some encouraging things, because the goal isn't to discourage people. The goal is to challenge people. So there's kind of a rhythm to this. I, I need to confront you about this, but also I need to remind you uh, of the goodness of God and what is happening in you. So this is where we're picking up on verse 9. Listen, my friends, we don't mean to discourage you completely with such talk. We're convinced that you are made for better things, the things of salvation, because God is not unjust or unfair. He won't overlook the work you have done or the love you have carried to each other in his name while doing his work as you are still doing. We want you all to continue working until the end so that you'll realize the certainty that comes with hope and not growing lazy. We want you to walk in the footsteps of the faithful who came before you, from whom you can learn to be steadfast in pursuing the promises of God. So one of my first questions as I read this is, what are the things of salvation? Because the author says, we're convinced you're made for better things, for the things of salvation. So I'm looking now at the passage, and I see in a verse before that, two verses before that, and Scott addressed this last week, that land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. We're the land, right? I mean, the rain is, is God's word and truth and blessing, and there's a crop that's produced in our life. And then I see the verse, you're made for better things, in verse 9, and then verse 10 talks about the works that you have done and the love that you have carried. So if I'm asking, what are the things of salvation that we're made for, these better things that we have? This crop, I believe, is the work that we do on behalf of others, on God's behalf. Uh, Matthew Henry said this about the passage, there are things that are never separated from salvation. The works of love done for the glory of Christ or done to his saints for Christ's sake are the evident marks of salvation. No love is to be reckoned as love, but a working love. And no works are right works which flow not from the love of Christ. In other words, if we have love, our love will be seen by the loving things we do for others. And if our works are right works or good works or righteous works, it's only because the power of God and the love of God is flowing in us. McLaren says it this way, if our Christian experience is worth anything, it will drive the wheels of self-sacrificing duty. If these certain accompaniments are wanting or are sparse and lacking in radiance in our lives, it's time we ask ourselves very seriously what the worth to us is of a salvation that does not produce in us the things that accompany salvation. So we're made for better things. I like this. I, Anthony Weber, am made for better things. 
You fill in your name are made for better things. God has designed us for holy works of love that we use in service to others. So I was thinking about this this week, and I sometimes hear phrases along the lines of, hey, you're perfect just the way you are. Uh, Two examples I found this week. There's nothing wrong with you. There's just a lot wrong with the world you live in. Uh, oh, Oh, we'll get to that one in just a second. Hang on. I think I timed that out wrongly. But the idea is that we often hear this message that who you are is perfect. And I think I know what's intended by that. People are trying to be affirming. They're trying to be nice. It's usually for someone who is discouraged or depressed. They're trying to remind them that there is something important and good about them. And I I don't disagree with that at all. But I just don't think the phrase is true to say you're perfect just the way you are. How do I know this? Because I'm not, and I'm confident that you're not. The Times of London once asked people to write in and address the question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, a Christian theologian, wrote in, I am, was his very simple response. Now, I want to be clear about this. I believe that because all people bear God's image, all people are in a sense beautiful, that people have value and worth and dignity. But in a Christian worldview, saying you are beautiful, but also saying, but not everything in you is beautiful, is not a contradictory thing. It's just an honest thing. I can say to someone, you're created in God's image with honor and worth and dignity, while at the same time saying to them, but not everything about you is honorable. Not everything about you is dignified. God has given you the privilege of bearing his image. And with that, there are some inherent important things about you. But we live in a broken and a flawed world. And I'm sorry we're not perfect just the way we are. Now, I know myself, and I'm assuming you do too. And one thing I know is that no matter what state I'm in, I know that I haven't arrived. Now, the reality is I want to be encouraged in my weaknesses. I don't want to be beat up for them, but I don't want my weaknesses to be overlooked. I don't think that's being honest. If, if I would come to you for a life checkup and I would say, how am I doing? And if you know me really well, I would hope to God that you would not say, hey, you're perfect, Anthony just the way you are, I hope you would have the boldness to say honestly, well, here are the things that are, that, are, that are righteous and good thanks to God's grace in your life. Here's the things that need some surrendering to God. That is for my good. That's for the good of everyone around me. And ultimately, it's for God's glory. In fact, I think if I were, if I were told that I was perfect, that would really discourage me, once again, because I know myself if this is perfection, other than perhaps my, um, my fashion sets, if, if this is perfection, I am deeply discouraged about where the bar has been raised to because I know myself. I, I know my anxiety and depression. I know my pride. I know my greed. I know my lust. I know my shallowness. I know my judgmentalism. I know these things in me. And you know those things in you. Right? 
Okay, so make sure I'm not on an island up here. If I'm going to throw myself under the bus, you're coming with me. See, I'm the kind of guy who has to apologize to people around me all the time. I'm not the husband I should be. I'm not the father I should be. I'm not the pastor I should be. This is just the reality of life. All right, I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you're coming to this church and I've not yet offended you and I've not yet had reason to apologize to you yet, give it time. I will. On this side of heaven, I'm not perfect. Right? I'm made for better things. Until the day I die, there will be room for improvement. It is always the case that I'm made for better things. Now, it's also the case that God is faithfully working in me. He who has begun a good work will be faithful to continue it. It will be completed when we finally stand before God in his fullness. So I, I take great comfort in that, that I am not who I was, thanks to Christ, but I am still made for better things. Here's the good news. We are loved by God in whatever state we are in, but that's not all. We're loved so much that God will also not leave us the way we are. Love desires, wills, and works for the betterment of others. Love embraces us where we are and walks with us where we still need to go. The God who loved us while we were yet sinners has made us for better things. So I love this about the God that we serve. He's made us for better things. He's promised to continue to work in us to move us toward those better things. Might I just add that if we are seeking constantly with the help of Christ to more and more reflect God's image, this will also be something that shows up in our relationships with each other. God is patient with us. God loves us in the state that we, we are in and loves us too much to leave us there and loves us so much that he walks with us as we continue to grow. If we're going to reflect the image of Christ, this has to characterize our life with others. We have to be the kind of people, with God's help, that are able to do the hard job of loving imperfect people around us because they're doing the hard job of doing that for us too. And because Christ modeled it for us. And then as we do that, then we recognize, uh, I can, with Christ's help, love you where you are. I will also, with Christ's help, love you too much to leave you where you are. And with God's help, I will link arms and walk with you to the better things for which we are all called. That is the hard work of church life, folks. That's just the reality of it. I was talking with people over in Costa Rica, and uh, they, they're on the base because they have students from eight different countries. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of differences, all kinds of differences. It is hard to replicate on earth what it's going to look like in front of the throne of God eventually. That is people of all kinds of backgrounds and personalities and racial makeups and you name it, getting everybody like that together, united by Christ in lives of worship and in a community of relational worship, 
that thanks to God, we can now in this life give kind of a glimpse of heaven, that we can build a community that is impossible to build without the grace of God. I love that idea. I'm daunted by that idea. I know I talk about this a lot, but this has just been on my heart a lot lately. Uh, Is it hard to do church with everybody in this room? Just everybody say amen. Maybe I should have clarified what I meant by that first. What I mean is there's somebody in this room that it's hard for you to do church with, I'll bet. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Hey, that's church life. That's life in Christ. It started in the New Testament. Read any of the letters. And it's been that way for 2,000 years. But we serve a God who is who has made us for better things and is working in us. And church life together is this opportunity to watch the power and goodness of God transform communities of people. Transform us first and then transform all of us. So by his grace, we're in an ongoing, growing process where we carry love to others in his name and we're becoming increasingly steadfast in pursuing the promises of God. By the way, I just noticed that I don't know what time it is because the clock isn't working. So if we want to be done on time, someone should bring me a clock. I'm just going to leave that out there. Okay. Let's go to verse 13. Next section. This is going to maybe feel like a new section, but at the end of this, I'm going to, we're going to look at the story that is being told by this entire section. Thank you, sir. Who applauded? Uh, <laughs> that's right. It's <laughs> a good application, Dave. All right, verse 13. Hebrews 6, remember when God made his promise to Abraham, he had to swear by himself, there being no one greater, surely I will bless you and multiply your descendants. And after Abraham had endured with patience, he obtained the promise he hoped for. With swearing an oath to confirm what they are saying, humans swear by someone greater than themselves and so bring their arguments to an end. In the same way, when God wanted to confirm his promise as true and unchangeable, he swore an oath to the heirs of that promise. So God has given us two unchanging things, his promise and his oath. These prove it's impossible for God to lie. And as a result, we who come to God for refuge might be encouraged to seize the hope that is set before us. That hope is real and true, an anchor to steady our restless souls. A hope that leads us back behind the curtain to where God is, as the high priest did in the days when reconciliation flowed from sacrifices in the temple. And we are led back into the place where Jesus, who went ahead on our behalf, has entered since he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's Melchizedek again. He's going to keep coming up. The last anchor basically just saying Jesus is our new high priest. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. So this is back to a theme in Hebrews of how Jesus is greater than all these things. We've already listed Jesus is greater than angels, than Abraham, than Moses. He's, his Sabbath is greater than the Sabbath. Uh, he's a greater high priest than Aaron and Melchizedek. And now God's promises are greater than any kind of promise that we can make because they're true and they're unchangeable because God swore an oath on the highest thing he could swear an oath on, and that is himself. 
Now, I've heard the claim made that we should remind God of his promises and demand that God uphold his promises to us. And I think this reflects desire to boldly approach the throne of God and also to remind ourselves of the things that God has promised us. But depending how it's phrased, I, I get a little nervous about saying that we, we must remind God of his promises. And I'll give you two reasons. First, um, I think it suggests that I'm in a position to tell God that he owes me. I am in no position to tell God that he owes me anything. Uh, because if I'm going to cite anything that I have done, I have the weight of all the things I have not done weighing against me. I have nothing on my own merit to give weight to my opinion of what God ought to do for me. But that second, God doesn't forget his promises. If I have to remind God of something, it suggests he forgot. God doesn't forget. And he certainly does not forget his promises, and I don't think he needs my reminder. He swore an oath to himself that he would be faithful. And I'm pretty sure that I can't add force to this with anything. Now, like I said, I think we use that phrase because we want to be reminded that God has sworn this oath to us. But I'm going to recommend this morning that we're careful in the ways that we say this, because I don't have to demand that a begrudging God finally give in and give me something he promised. Because he he promised it based on himself. If he promised it, it's coming. It's going to happen. I can rest in this. Let's go back a couple weeks when we talked about the true rest, the true Sabbath that we get because of Jesus. This is something I can rest in. God has made a promise, God will keep his promise. I can rest. He's faithful. He's a faithful high priest who intercedes on behalf of his children so that the eternal penalty of our sins won't damn us. I don't have to remind God of this. He knows. And he is faithful to give this as he promised. So here, I think, is the story that the passage is telling. Number one. Doing righteous, loving works in God's name is the crop of Jesus living and moving in us. We talk about fruit in our lives. This is what we should expect to see as a result of our salvation. Not a perfection, but God increasingly moving us on toward those better things that we're made for. Our reward is this ongoing perfection of our character as God transforms us increasingly into his image and our ability to do loving good works in service to others because the love that Christ has given to us is flowing out of us to them. In spite of our failures, we can trust God to be faithful to us because he swore to himself, by himself, to be a faithful high priest to us. That is his promise to himself. And then finally, this is the hope that God offers And it's meant to be an anchor for our soul. So the Greeks used the anchor to symbolize hope. If you would see old coins from the time the Bible was written, there's anchors on quite a few of them. I give you a couple samples up here. It's a little hard to see, but very common symbol for hope. So the writer of Hebrews is not suddenly making up a symbol and asking the early Christians, I want you to start thinking of the anchor as a hope. They already thought of that. It was associated in their minds. 
What the early church did was begin to use this anchor. In fact, in the catacombs, you find this all over the place. And it's actually a, a kind of a pun in Greek. Uh, the Christians would talk about people dying in Christ. And in the Greek, that's almost exactly the same letters and construct and sound as anchor. So when Christians would die, they would put an anchor on their tombstone. And it was a sign that this was someone who had died in Christ, for all of you pun fans. Then they would add things. You can see a little bit. They started to add the fish, which was another early symbol that the Christians used, kind of a coded way to talk about their faith that didn't necessarily get them killed. Uh, you can see on the left a, a more almost stylized cross because in this kind of an anchor, a cross is inherently part of it. So now you can work in the cross in the anchor and you can use it publicly as a way of sending a signal that you're a Christian and it didn't necessarily get you captured and tortured for being a Christian. You'll even see some, and I don't know if the one on the left is meant to show this, but some increasing stylization of either a crown of thorns or like a head there, like there's a crucified person on there. So the the early church was very clever with using lots of symbols to convey their allegiance to Christ. But the anchor precedes the cross in the church as a symbol of who Jesus is. Uh, some of you might remember a Christian artist named Michael Card. He did an album. Do we still say albums? I don't know. He did an album not so long ago about uh, the symbol of the anchor. And in an interview he said, the first century symbol wasn't the cross. It was the anchor. If I'm a first century Christian and I'm hiding in the catacombs and three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burned at the stake or crucified and set ablaze as torches at one of Emperor Nero's garden parties, the symbol that most encourages me in my faith is the anchor. When I see it, I'm reminded that Jesus is my anchor. So I was thinking this last week of all the things that remind me of the need to remember that Jesus is my anchor. So let's, let's go back to this passage is talking about that what Jesus does for us as a faithful high priest is what anchors us in this life. So because of Jesus, we can be made right with God. We are no longer under condemnation. We've experienced the salvation of Christ if we give our lives to him, and now we are under the grace of God. And that plays itself out in our lives. It gives us hope that we're people made for better things and that even on this side of heaven, God is faithfully at work in us. And it's affecting not just us, but it's affecting the community of fellow believers. It's affecting our families. It's Now God is, is leaking out of us, so to speak, and just going out into the world. So this, this is our anchor. Christ gave his life, has saved us. Why is this important? So we were at a resort for a couple days because we had to suffer for Jesus there last Monday and Tuesday. And I was standing there and I overheard a conversation. A young lady was talking with a young man. And I, I couldn't help but overhear. And she was, I think, bragging to him about a party she'd been at a, a month or so before. And she said, Basically, I drank and I drank and I drank and I got so drunk, I took the shot glass the bartender gave me and I shattered it against the wall. And he said, you're going to have to leave. And I said, give me another shot. And then I threw up. 
And the guy she was talking to, because I, I think she was trying to impress this guy, the guy she was talking to said, and I quote, that sounds terrible, which I think was the right response. And she said, well, then last week, I just spent the weekend partying with a bunch of sailors. And I walked away from that thinking, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that testimony of an anchorless life. It it struck me as someone desperately looking to belong, to to find someone who loves and cares. it, it It was the testimony of a broken heart and a broken life. And I, I walked away from thinking that, thinking, I, I know what you need. You need Jesus. You need an anchor for your life, something that grounds you. Right now, your life is being tossed around by storms, and, and you're following those storms. You need Jesus as an anchor. And then I started thinking of all the things just in the last week as I talked with people, the things that remind me of the importance of this anchor. Um, Those we love die. And it's hard. And it's a storm of life that can look at times like it will overwhelm us and sink us. Marriages struggle. Poverty threatens to overwhelm. Bankruptcy looms. Lust undermines purity and integrity. Depression overwhelms people. Illness eats away at us. Our relationships and our friendships struggle. Our dreams die. Politics angers and divides us. And on a day like today, on Veterans Day, we're just reminded again of pain and loss and suffering in the world. Uh, because as those of you who have served, you, it's hard to walk away from an experience like that without having scars of some sort. And I finally stopped writing this list out because I could just keep going. But it just reminded me, all of us sitting in here have storms in our life. There's something that threatens to, to perhaps carry us away in some sense from either closeness with Christ or trust or hope or any of those things. Certainly the writer of Hebrews writing to the early church knew uh, what was going on in their lives with very real persecution as Michael Card described. And it just struck me, this is an important reminder. Jesus is the anchor. That's the only anchor. That's the only thing that stabilizes us in the midst of storms. There's other maybe ballast that we can throw out. I'm not a sailor. I don't even know if that's the right term. Other little weights we can dangle over the side of the ship that maybe uh, right us a little bit or keep us kind of steady, but there's nothing that takes the place of an anchor. There's only one thing in this life that anchors us, and that's Jesus. And the reminder that no matter what we are going through, Jesus offers us life, eternal life forgiven life, a sanctified life, a life where we are made for more. We are made for the things of salvation. A life in which God's word guides us and his Holy Spirit moves in us and his people surround us. I don't know, that's good news to me. 
That's good news. And I was trying to think how to close this morning. And I, I think our closing prayer is going to be a song. It's a guy named Josh Garrels has a song called Anchor of My Soul. And in some ways, it's a prayer. So as we play this uh, final video song, I just encourage you to enter into this with a, with a prayerful spirit. Uh, and either with the words of the song itself or just between you and God in your own personal way, turn your thoughts toward Jesus and the reminder of the comfort that we find in Christ. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.